The Killing Type, a novel by Wayne Jones, Chapter 12. The police find Rodney Tweed's mangled body at the bottom of a ravine about 30 kilometers out of town. I hear from my contact inside the department that the site was, in his words, not pretty. Tweed landed in such a way that both his neck and his back were broken, and the end result with arms and legs akimbo was horrific enough, I hear, to make one investigator turn his head away. There's more. His face was nearly completely smashed in, and his hands and arms are covered with various cuts and bruises that suggest the struggle. Here's my take on it, my contact tells me. There was a fight, probably one that caught the murderer off guard because he had just planned to take the guy there and throw him off. You know, just throw him off the cliff. Who knows the reason for these things? Imagine something like they were friends or met at a bar or something or the murderer had some kind of grudge against the guy for some reason in the first place and he came up with some way to lure him up there like maybe for a joint or something, or he promised him a hooker or whatever, who knows. But it didn't go well, and a fight broke out, and the only thing the murderer had going for him, the element of surprise, well, that was lost now, and they were both even, both fighting for their lives, literally, and the murderer won. Or at least we think so. Who knows? The beat-in face, that's anger, being pissed off at the fact that his original plan was foiled. The marks there on the face, they show evidence of being both from fists and feet, his shoes. The guy tried to beat and kick him to death, and then he threw him off the cliff. This description, rendered in all its professional and colloquial glory, leaves me cold. I don't know whether his assessment is accurate, but the fact that it is even a feasible explanation makes me sad about the entire project of humanity. Still, it's a neatly detailed story, but personally, I have my doubts about its accuracy. My contact is indeed a professional who has seen many more murders than this one, but the modus operandi doesn't strike me as authentic. I base my assessment partly on my own research so far, but also on common sense, and it surprises me a bit that my friend has not arrived at exactly the same conclusion. The scenario he describes is just much too complicated, too replete with uncontrolled variables to be the chosen method of a skilled serial killer. Inviting the, the victim somewhere, getting into a fight, pummeling the man, it's all too much of a spectacle to be real, and yet I don't have any alternative theory. I could imagine that the facts happened, fight first and then thrown off the cliff, and maybe it just the it was the actual storyline, the motivations that I agree with. I visit the crime scene after it has been cleaned up, after police have been there and removed what they think they need and put it all in the same kind of resealable plastic bags that their wives pack their sandwiches in. I don't really know what I'm looking for, nothing really. I just want to get a sense of the place to feel the contrast in vibes, as they call them, between the simple, rural, bucolic, natural, and the grossly urban and human. I stand at the edge of that same ravine, and I can't help but shudder at the thought of poor Rodney, no matter what shape he was in when he was launched, tumbling over and over, and probably hoping against all hope that he might land safely. 
The wind kicks up and I step back out of fear that nature or God may have mistaken me for the bad guy and so contrive to make a little tear in the fabric of pre-free will by blowing me off the edge. I make my way sullenly back to the car. The wind has stopped blowing altogether. Victim escapes clutches of prime mover. But I think I feel the hint of rain in the air. I decide to take another route back home, and I realize as I ascend and then descend my fifth hill that I am in the same part of the outskirts of the city where the disgraced police chief lives. I slow the car down while I contemplate taking a little detour. There really is no hesitation, though. I turn off onto the familiar side road that leads to his cottage. I continue for a couple of minutes and eventually spot the mailbox with his name on it in perfectly aligned gold and black letters. The little flag is up. I park on the road and for a brief moment wonder what exactly I think I am doing here. The rain starts coming down lightly and I pull the zipper of my jacket up. Too far, it pinches me under the chin, thrusting my hands in my pockets deep as if to force hug myself for protection. There is a very pure silence, the kind I wish I had every night, and I can't imagine that there is any human around. I walk down to the cottage, take one last look around for nothing in particular, and then walk up to the one large window on the front of the house. The curtains are casually drawn, and when I put my face closer to the window, the rain coming down harder now, my nose brushing up against the glass, I see a very spare scene. A lazy boy. The television on but nobody watching. A bowl of something. Potato chips, perhaps sitting on a little dark brown table within easy reach of whoever is supposed to be in the recliner. I pull back and look up at where the sky would be if the rain were not coming down so blindingly. Nothing, I say out loud, to whom and about what topic I have no idea. I pull the collar up on my jacket, providing little increased protection but at least preventing some water from running coldly down my back. I walk around to the large yard at the rear of the place, which leads down to a picturesque-looking boat moored at a beautifully dilapidated dock. There's a ragged path leading through the overgrown grass down to the water. A flash of lightning startles me, and seconds later the thunder growls in disapproval. I walk down to the boat and notice a small shed on my left, its door wide open. I stand there for a few seconds and assess the scene, though already knowing again what I will do. Inside, there's the same spareness as in the living room. It looks like the set in a bad movie, one where the bad guy is supposed to come and hit me on the head with something, or else startle me and engender a long, pointless chase through the woods, with only one of us coming out alive. Things are more prosaic here. I walk around quietly and examine the place both up and down, but I see nothing out of the ordinary. Some rope, a shovel, a mess of tools spilling out of the red metal box on an old wooden table. I imagine a hanging, someone splatted with that shovel, someone else stabbed with any number of possibilities in and around the toolbox. I shake off the premonitions and walk back out into the nascent darkness. The rain has stopped and I can see the still ominous sky is clearing. 
a cloud moving, one more star showing. I hurry across the grass, past the house, and back up to the car. On a whim, not unlike several others during this ill-advised escapade, I turn around and walk over to the mailbox. I lower the little flag and then look inside. It's surprisingly stuffed. Of course, I grab the entire contents and make my way back to the car again, where I sit in relative comfort while I wifle through the poor man's civic rights. Junk mail, bills, a solicitation for a shindig of some kind at the Nosting Entertainment Palace. I am tempted to open the one from the law firm, but I do eventually come to whatever modicum of senses I still have. I bring the pile back to the mailbox and stuff it full again, though the end result is not as neat as the postman had managed. My effort is literally bulging at its seams. On the drive back, my mind is a jumble again, but I do manage at some point to rest things back to a due consideration of poor Mr. Tweed. There is something just not right about the whole thing. I come to the sleuth's only conclusion that the solution lies in some missing piece of this whole story, this puzzle. Once that is known, then the optical illusion becomes the most obvious bit of representational fact imaginable. This, I have learned before and have had confirmed today, is the true trick of discovery in this gumshoe business. Facts and impressions swirl and swirl until you find the secret at the center that is animating everything.